Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered him, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks be to God. Okay, have a seat now. Yeah. So I have a favorite line from the, uh, the musical Hamilton. I love Hamilton. I, I have the, uh, the um, soundtrack on repeat in my car all too often. Um, there's this one line when, when George Washington is uh, kind of being introduced, uh, and he, he stops kind of mid-song, and he says, uh, Can I be real a second? Just a millisecond? Let down my guard and tell the people how I feel a second? And that's how I feel right now. Like, George Washington goes on to, to confess that though he's this model of like bravery and of the general and of victory, he's actually really apprehensive and anxious because when he sees the British cannons fire, <coughs> he gets concerned. He gets worried. Um, and I'm kind of in that boat right at the moment. I just got to be real. I get discouraged. I know you would never believe it, right? I'm a smiley guy. I'm a happy guy. Um, but I get real discouraged sometimes. I get discouraged by church attendance and by engagement, and I get discouraged by things I see happening in the world and arguments and fights within the church that are just stupid. I mean, really, really stupid. Um, and and I, I get concerned about the future of the church. I get anxious about the future of the church. I go to these church conferences and I, I talk with other pastors and I hear about different models of church. Now, I am a professional church man, right? I, I'm, I'm a preacher above everything else in my vocation. Like, that's just what God made me to do. And when we start talking about different models of church that don't center around the Sunday morning service and preaching, I go, oh, I don't know. Like, where's my future in that, right? It, it makes me nervous and anxious. And yet, I see in the world around us needs for different ways of doing and being the church. The need for different expressions of the church, different ways for the church to be in the world. I see the need for that, and yet my own heart gets torn up in knots at the idea of the church changing, of addressing our culture and our world. And, and, and then sometimes I just get worried about the future of the church. And let's be honest, COVID's made a big impact on that. You look around the room, right? We're at half of what we were in December of 2019, less than half. I mean, I came in in June of 18, and it was a great honor to be called to the church and, and to be leading it, and, and a lot happened in a year and a half. 
And it felt like December of 19, January 2020, we were hitting this stride and things were going well and we were growing and there was a lot of energy and excitement about what was happening. And then February, March come and boom, it feels like all that momentum just ran us right into a brick wall. And ever since then, we've been asking ourselves, what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to gather as the church? I mean, during this entire season, we've, we've all had to wrestle with what it, what it is to be the church. And a lot of people discovered online church for the first time, and they found that, oh my gosh, this is really nice. I can sit on my couch, and I don't have to be there in person. And I don't have to do the work of getting up. And I don't have to do the work of getting to church. And I don't have to sit next to those people I don't really like. And I don't have to sing the boring songs that I don't really like either. Or I don't have to listen to the boring preacher or whatever. I can just be comfortable and at home. And we've unfortunately bought into the lie that that's church. And it's not. If you're with us online this morning, I love you and I'm grateful for you and thank you. But what you're doing right now is not church. What you're doing right now is consuming content. A lot of Christians around the world found that consuming content was easier than doing church. It was easier than being present with people that they didn't want to rub shoulders with. A lot of people around the world found out that it was a whole lot easier to lull myself into the lie of thinking that I'm engaged with the church if I'm just watching stuff online. To lull myself into the lie that I can be a Christian on my own. That I can engage with God by myself. That what's most important is my individual relationship with God and not my relationship to one another. That's a hard realization. It's a hard thing when we gather as pastors and pastors are saying, yeah, I don't expect half my congregation to come back. They found that it was more comfortable at home. It's really hard to be with other pastors and say, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen to the future of my church. It's been really hard to walk with other pastors whose churches have closed during this season because they, they can't. They can't run. They can't operate. I've had church planting friends have to shut down their church plants because they got started right before the pandemic began and have to shut down. We've seen churches close at an alarming rate in the past year and a half. And all of this compounds for those of us in church leadership and it makes us anxious and it makes us afraid. And sometimes we leave church going, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if it's worth the anxiety. I don't know if it's worth the work. I don't know if it's worth feeling like I'm beating my head against a wall to make this thing work. And we put the pressure on ourselves. I'm coming up to a point of hope in a moment. So if you feel beat up, I'm sorry. It's coming, I promise. You see, the problem in church leadership right now, the problem for a lot of us in church leadership who are feeling that discouragement, who really do go home and cry over the state of our churches and over the hearts of our people, those of us who really do feel the anxiety of what's next in the life of the church and feel the pain most deeply of the changes that have happened to the church in the past year and a half. We carry it on our shoulders. And this is where we got to check ourselves. This is where we in church leadership got to check ourselves because suddenly what we've done in our anxiety and in our discouragement is we've forgotten who's really in charge of the church. We've forgotten who really is the one who moves the church forward. And we've assumed 
that it's our programs and our creativity and our public speaking prowess and our ability to put together stuff that makes the church thrive. When we leave from a service discouraged at the attendance or discouraged by something that went wrong or discouraged by the number of people who didn't praise us, we've suddenly taken the focus off of Jesus and we've put all the weight and focus on ourselves. And we've forgotten that it's not us who drives the church. It's not us who are responsible for the life of the church. And then we're really myopic, we're really short-sighted, because we assume that the moment we live in is unique. If you think that this time and place is unique in history, you just don't know history. Throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of the world, we see these cycles come and these cycles go. There's nothing new under the sun, said Solomon. And he said that in like 1000 BC. There was nothing new under the sun then. And there's nothing new under the sun now. Culture changes with every generation. Pandemics come and go. Pressures happen. There's a great writer, G.K. Chesterton. He was a Catholic writer. Uh, C.S. Lewis, if you know the name C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis credited G.K. Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, for his conversion to Christianity. So back, uh, back when Chesterton was alive and writing, he wrote this book called The Everlasting Man, and it was a response to a book that H.G. Wells had written. Now, we all know H.G. Wells, right, of The Time Machine, that great English author. H.G. Wells was a harsh, harsh critic of the church. And when H.G. Wells wrote his book, The Outline of History, he imagined a world in which the church no longer existed because he saw the church as only propping up fascism and causing pain and trouble in the world. Does this sound familiar to anybody? In the time when H.G. Wells was writing, he, he looked around at the church and he said, this is just a group of hypocrites who are propping up fascists around the world. He saw them as largely responsible for World War I and for all of the detriment and bad in the world. And H.G. Wells wrote a stinging critique of the church. And so Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, that great writer, wrote a response to H.G. Wells' outline of history and called it The Everlasting Man. And in this book, Chesterton argued that the Christianity has actually died at least five times in world history. Here's a quote from his book. Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. The faith is always converting the age, not as an old religion, but as a new religion. At least five times, therefore, with the Arian and the Albigensian, with the humanist skeptic after Voltaire and after Darwin, the faith has to all, has all, to all appearance gone to the dogs. In each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. This is the final fact, and it is the most extraordinary of all. The faith has not only often died, but it has often died of old age. It has not been only killed but it has often died a natural death in the sense of coming to a natural and necessary end. You see, what Chesterton did in response to H.G. Wells and in response to the cultural world around him that said, the church is not relevant, Chesterton said, yeah, you're right. Our forms may not be relevant. Some of the things we do may not be relevant. 
right now. And so the church has gone through a necessary death, but it will always be reborn because it is the faith in the reborn Son of God. It is the faith of the resurrected, not reborn, the resurrected Son of God, the resurrected Jesus, the God who knows the way out of the grave. And so no matter how many times the church has looked like it was on its deathbed, it will always be resurrected. It will always survive. It will always live, no matter how it needs to adapt to the world. And he wrote this in 1925. 100 years ago, the critics of the church were looking around and saying, you're not relevant anymore. Your forms aren't relevant. The way you worship aren't relevant. Your getting together isn't relevant. In 1925, the critics of the church looked at Christianity and said, you don't matter to the world. And 100 years later, we have the audacity to believe that the cultural critics of the church are something new. That this is somehow some new criticism and that we're going to have to find some new way out of it. And we get afraid and anxious for the death of the church. We have the audacity to believe that that in our, in our chronological arrogance, that because we are in the day that we are in, somehow the church is at more risk now than it was 100 years ago or 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago when it started with a group of 12 unqualified dudes called by Jesus. The church has never been in more trouble than it is right now. The church has never been more secure than it is right now. The world has never been better than it is right now, and the world has never been worse than it is right now. The world continues, and the church continues. And as much as those of us in leadership get anxious and we get our hearts in knots over the future of the church and what it means for us individually and what it means for us corporately and what it might mean for our little embassies of the church, our little embassies of heaven around the world— for those of us in leadership who get anxious, we, we only need to remind ourselves that we serve the God of resurrection who promised that his church would never fade, that his church would never fail. And, and that's why I come to this text today. That's why we come to this place where Jesus is talking to Peter and to his disciples. Because I think this roots our hope for the future of not only Christ Community Church, but for the future of the capital C Church of Jesus Christ forever. This counters and challenges my arrogance that says it's what I do and how I behave and how I structure things and how good a speaker I am that determines the future of the church. This text calls us to absolute humility and trust in Jesus above all as the resurrected God who will see his church through every situation. It calls us to the humility that says we are not unique in our time and place, that the pressures on the church are not unique to now, but that our resurrected Lord will see us through. And so we come to this text here. Now, what's happening is Peter's, Jesus is walking with his disciples, with his, uh, the ones who were with him all the time, traveling with him as he was traveling. It's not just the 12. There's a whole group of people who traveled around with Jesus. And so they're walking and they come to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was kind of up on the side of a mountain. There's this big mountain called Mount Hermon that's north of Galilee, north of the Sea of Galilee, and it's about 700 and so feet above Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus' hometown, where Jesus lives. 
And so they're, they're walking along, and, and you, you imagine, like, they've they got some elevation gain. They've been walking a while. They need a break. So they come to a break at Caesarea Philippi on the side of Mount Hermon. And there in Caesarea Philippi is a temple to the god Pan called Panaeus. He was a major Roman deity. So there's this big temple to Pan. And so they're in this incredibly pagan place. This place where the worship of Pan defines the community. And Jesus, there in the shadow of the temple to the god Pan, asks his followers, who do people say that I am? So these Jesus disciples step up and they say, well, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist, resurrected. Which is mainly funny because they lived at the same time. They were only like six months apart being born, right? So they're the same age. Like, how is Jesus resurrected John the Baptist when he's only six months younger? Anyway, I don't know. But some are saying he's John the Baptist. Others are saying Jesus is Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now here's what's going on. In this day and age, it was largely accepted among Jewish leadership that prophecy had ceased, that there weren't any more prophets like those of old. Elijah, Jeremiah, Elisha, what name, name a prophet from the Old Testament. And in Jesus' time and place, it was largely assumed there weren't any more of those guys. They were done. They were in the past. But that at the end of the age, before the great day of the Lord, before God made all things right, prophets would come back. At least one prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah would return and usher in the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment on the nations and the day that God made his people free again. And so when these people hear Jesus speak, they go, oh, that's the return of the prophet. The day of the Lord is coming. The end of the age is coming. The freedom of Israel is at hand. So they're not saying Jesus is Messiah, but that he's the forerunner to the Messiah. That he's the prophet who's come to bring about the end of the age. And so that's what people are saying. And Jesus says, okay, that's all in good, but what do you guys think? Who do you say I am? And this is where Peter, Simeon, Simon, stands up and he says, you are Mashiach. You are Christos. You are Messiah, Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends Peter for what he answers Because this is the most important question in the history of humanity. It is the most important question for the world. It's the most important question for every society. It's the most important question for every culture. And it is the most important question for every one of us individually. Who is Jesus? How you answer that will determine everything. How you answer the question, who is Jesus, will determine how you live your life. It'll determine the hope that you hold. It'll determine your eternal destiny. It will determine absolutely everything. This is the most important question ever asked by any person who has ever lived. Who is Jesus? And so I ask you, who is Jesus? Is he a prophet? Is he a nice teacher? Is he a good man? Is he someone who encourages you to love people? Is he one God among many? Is he one expression of God among many? Who's Jesus to you? Is he just some dead guy who lived a long time ago, but who only matters because of the people who have claimed to follow him over the past 2,000 years? Who's Jesus to you?
How you answer that determines absolutely everything. And I'm going to get real exclusive right now because there's only one right answer. There's only one right answer to that question. And Simon Peter gives it right here. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If Jesus is anything less than that to you, you don't know Jesus. If Jesus is anything less than that to you, then you are not following Jesus. You don't belong to him. If Jesus is anything less than that to us, we are left on our own without hope in the world. Any answer to the question, who is Jesus, that doesn't answer in the way that Simon Peter has here, you are Messiah, you are son of the living God, leaves us hopeless in the world. That's the fact of the matter. And that's why Jesus commends Simon. And he says to Simon, blessed are you because you figured that out, Simon. Good job. Blessed are you, Simon, because you reasoned it out. Blessed are you, Simon, because you got it on the first try, buddy. No. No, he says, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You couldn't have puzzled this one out. There was no way for you to figure this out apart from the Spirit of God revealing it to you. Apart from God himself letting you know this is who Jesus is. And we are so blessed now that we live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. We are so blessed now that God has revealed to us in his word exactly who Jesus is so that we are without excuse in the world. This isn't something we could have puzzled out. This isn't something that we could have come to by reason. This is not something that we could have academically studied and come to the right conclusion of. This is something that must be revealed to us by God himself. And we have his revelation right here. This is something only God could tell us. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, there's an irony here because Peter doesn't really understand what he's confessing at this point. You see, the prophecy went, the prophecies of Messiah went, that this person would be the son of God in the same way that King David was a son of God. In the same way that the king of the nation was a son of God. Adopted by God in order to lead God's people. That was what the prophecy said. That's how it was understood. So when Simon Peter says, hey, you are the son of the living God. He's imagining King David. He's imagining this military leader. He doesn't know exactly what he's confessing. And yet Jesus still commends him. Jesus knows that Simon doesn't fully get it. Jesus knows that Simon won't get it till after the resurrection. When he has that post-resurrection conversation with Peter and he asks, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. So Jesus knows that his understanding is incomplete and yet Simon is beginning at the right place. We won't get Jesus right all the time. We won't fully understand everything Jesus tells us to do. We won't understand exactly the extent to which Jesus is leading us. And yet, if we simply come to him in the humility of saying, you are the Christ, you are the King, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God, then he takes our allegiance and he leads us on. 
All it takes is the humility to stand before Jesus and give our allegiance to him, even in the incompleteness of our understanding, even though we're going to get him wrong. It's still in the recognition of saying, Jesus, you are my king. Because at the end of the day, that's what Messiah means. Messiah is the king of Israel, the king of God's people, the one who will lead them to freedom into a freedom we can't imagine. And so Jesus commends Simon and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And then he says something weird about keys. We're not going to totally get into the key stuff today. We'll talk about it later. But for the moment... Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. And there are a couple things going on here. Jesus renames Peter based on his confession and says, now you're a rock, and on this rock, I'll build my church. The rock that Jesus is referring to is not Peter himself. This is not an argument for Peter as the first pope. This is not an argument for Peter even as the administrative leader of the followers of Jesus. The rock that Jesus is saying he will build upon is that confession of Jesus as Messiah. That confession of Jesus as Christ. It is upon the confession that Jesus, you are Christ, that Christ will build his church. Now we've got to ask what that word church means. It's only used twice in the Gospels. Twice on the lips of Jesus does that word ever come up. In Greek the word is ekklesia. Literally, It simply means gathering. The ecclesia is the gathering of God's people. Here's why you can't be a Christian individually. Because you can't gather by yourself. The church is the gathered people of God. Where we are gathered, we are the church. We can't gather alone. We can't gather with the trees as God's church. We can't gather with the mountains. We can't gather with the lakes. We can't gather with our kayaks sitting out on the calm water as much as I love to do that. We gather with God's people. And when we are gathered, we are the church. Because that's what the church is. The gathered people of God. Brought together by the confession that Jesus is Messiah. That's what the church is. And that's what the gates of Hades cannot stand against. Now, you're, you're may, if you're familiar with this verse, you may be familiar with, a more, with an older reading that says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's, a, that's an unfortunate translation. Because the Greek word here is Hades, not hell. Hades and hell are not the same thing. And so in Jesus' time and place, when Jesus says Hades, what he means is death won't stand against the church. Not hell as we think of it, not the forces of Satan, not demons, not not the forces of evil. When Jesus says the gates of Hades will not stand against it, what he's saying is death can't take my church. My church will never die. My people will never die. Death can't overcome you. So when we get anxious about the future of the church and when we get worried and and concerned, is the church in in trouble? Is the church going to die? Jesus' emphatic answer to us is no. 
As long as there are people who are professing Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of the living God, and they are gathering together under that banner, the church will never die. It can't. It cannot die because its Lord is risen from the dead, because Jesus has overcome death itself. And that was an element of what Jesus is saying here that these original followers just could not have understood in this moment when Jesus tells them the gates of Hades won't prevail. They did not realize at this point, they did not know at this point that when Jesus says the gates of Hades won't triumph over the church, just how literal he was being. Because not long after, Jesus would go to Jerusalem and he would be arrested and he would be tried and he would be crucified. And in that moment, it would look like all the promises of Jesus were lies. In that moment, it would look like all of the proclamations of Jesus had come to nothing. In that moment, it would look truly like the gathering of followers of Jesus was dead. And in that one Saturday, between the cross on Friday afternoon and the resurrection Sunday morning, on that one dark Saturday, it must have looked like Jesus' promise was null and void that his church had indeed died. And no one foresaw. No one knew in that moment. No one held on to the hope at that time that Jesus' promise of overcoming the gates of Hades was very literal, was very real, until that next morning, until that Sunday morning, when they went to the tomb of Jesus, when the women followers of Jesus, holding out hope, went to prepare his body for burial, and they found an empty tomb. They found that the promise of Jesus was strong, that it could not be overcome, and that truly the gates of Hades had no power over Jesus or his people. And that Sunday morning when Jesus appeared in his resurrected body to tell Mary Magdalene, go back and tell the men what's happened. Tell those doubting followers of mine Tell those doubting leaders of mine that truly I have overcome the grave. I have overcome death. My friends, followers of Jesus, there is no need to concern ourselves with whether the church has a future or not. There's no need to get ourselves worked up in anxiety, regardless of the numbers in our sanctuaries or regardless of what the culture says or regardless of the criticisms that are thrown against the church and regardless of how we as a church have to pivot in order to meet the needs of the people around us, regardless of how we have to change and, and adopt new wineskins to hold this precious gospel, regardless of what our future looks like practically, we need to have no anxiety about the future of Christ's church because Christ died, but Christ is risen again, and the hope for his people is in that resurrection. It is a declaration to us that no matter how close to death we may look, resurrection awaits all the followers of Jesus and awaits us not only individually, but as his gathered church. God is faithful, God is good, and death 
cannot overtake him because our good God has once for all conquered the grave in Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That is our future. And so I will continue to be discouraged from time to time. I will continue to wonder. I will continue to feel anxiety. Because that's the role that I'm in and I am a human being. My hope is that in those moments of discouragement and anxiety, I can turn and I can look to the cross and I can be reminded of the empty tomb and I can look to my risen King Jesus who has defeated death and place all of that discouragement and anxiety into his hands and trust in the resurrection of my good King Jesus who promises a resurrection for his church. And so thank you for gathering here today. Thank you for being the church. If you are online with us, thank you for joining us. And I hope that next week you can be part of the gathered church here as we celebrate and remind ourselves of the resurrection of our Lord and of his power over death and anxiety and discouragement and despair. And we can put all of our hope in the life that he not only promises, but has displayed for us in his resurrection and in his ruling as king. And so I speak a word of encouragement this morning. And no matter what the state of the church may look like, no matter what the state of the world may look like, our good king has conquered death and promises us life. And that's what we celebrate when we come to this table. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.